Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Happy Christmas, Danny. Happy Christmas and a Merry New Year's to you. And happy Christmas to all of our listeners. How's everything going, man? Um, how are you? Chilling, man. I, I finally uh, snagged an apartment for rent, so I think this is going to be the last time where I'm recording in some strange condition. I'm in an Airbnb right now, and there's no desk, so what I did was I hooked up my computer to the TV and I push the couch like super close to it. So I'm just like chilling on a couch. Uh, but it's actually really quiet in here. So I think the audio is going to sound pretty good. So uh, yeah. anyway, I'm, I'm excited to not have to, to have like a real setup again and, and get back to business, get back on track, on schedule, regular releases. Yeah, man. Yeah. So last episode that we recorded was kind of like a disaster as far as putting <laughs> that thing together. I know that you oh, were God. editing that. It was because so hard. both of us, yeah, both of us were recording in just like weird ass places. Um, I was recording on a Pilates machine in Chicago. Yep, and um, I was in a closet, <laughs> like in a, in I was a, in a in closet, like a literally room. in a closet. Uh, yeah, and there was and this. You were um, in a closet. There's this guy who lives in at my aunt's place, which is where I was uh, posted up for the recording, and uh, it's just this older gentleman. Uh, his name's Giuseppe, and uh, he. Um, he was having some very loud phone conversations outside, but like so loud. Yeah, I heard him. Hear it, you know. Uh, so apologies in advance for his conversations, um, but you know I can't tell a guy to not not have his conversations. So shut the fuck up! Be... I'm podcasting here. <laughs> no, I think that'll Imagine be the last that. time that happens. <laughs> yeah, so I think we're gonna we're we're kind of finalizing our spree of like ghetto ass setups as, as far as recording is concerned i'm back i'm back home in my normal recording environment so i mean i think we'll be good and you know you're about to you know congratulations by the way and finally finding a place well i guess kind of halfway there finding a place right in puerto rico yeah i mean i haven't purchased something yet you know cross your fingers for me guys you know i'm, I'm in the process of actually buying something but right now we went ahead and just rented a place for six months just so we can get you know some stability in our lives and the rent is pretty cheap and it's a nice apartment so you know hopefully that'll just give me some peace of mind while we work on this uh forever stuff so yeah thank you man well is rent cheaper than new york rent i'm assuming yeah. that right if you're saying yeah, it's cheap. Yeah. yeah dude yes like considerably cheaper let's say like like 60 percent cheaper than than new york oh, that's awesome yeah. so i mean I mean, that doesn't seem so bad to me. You're in a beautiful location. You're paying a lot lower of rent. You're making a New York salary, basically. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you have a pretty good setup. And then the sizing yep. of the, like the size of the place is good, too. Yeah, it's twice as big as my last apartment in New York. And I really liked my last apartment in New York. So, you know, that it's going to give us more than enough room. But now the trouble that we have is like, okay, we're probably going to have an, a pretty empty apartment for a while because 
you know, we're in the process of buying something. So I don't want to buy furniture for one place and then it not fit or like not go with the new place. You know what I mean? So that's, yeah. that's, a that's something to think about, but you know, we'll start small and we'll get there. <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe I'll go to Puerto Rico for, I miss you already, by the way. I wish you were yeah, still, you know, I'm kind of sad that you're not close to me because we were only about a half hour. I mean, it if took me about hour. a half hour to get to your apartment from my place <coughs> on a in bicycle. Park Slope yeah. to, to Bushwick. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm, I'm going to miss you. Um, maybe I'll come to Puerto Rico for my bachelor party. Dude, you're more than welcome to. Whatever you like, uh, I'll have an extra room if you need it. So, Yeah. I mean, it would be like seven or eight guys. I don't. I wouldn't want to invite that many people to your house. But well, we could get um, we could get like one of those like swanky yeah, Airbnbs, you know. I'd want to get one of those like yeah, because you know we I've been trying to plan my bachelor party, and mm-hmm. a lot of my friends, so like my friends are kind of dictating it more than what I want. You know, I well, I wanted to do some hiking yeah. trip. Got into like hiking um, over the past couple of years, and uh, like this summer I did like a big trip to Mount Washington, which was a lot of fun, and I want to do something cool. like that in the Northeast. That's easy. But my problem is, is that most of my friends will die yeah. <laughs> on a hiking trip. Like most of my most of my buddies, well, half my buddies would love it, and then half my other half are would have heart attacks on their way up, like up a mountain. Well, so I think we're gonna I, have to roll that out. Can I interest um, you in, and, in something here in Puerto Rico that I've done before? It's something called canyoneering, and it's like hiking. Canyoneering. It's yeah, canyoneering. It's it's um it's like hiking, water fording, and rappelling, and sometimes zip lining. So basically, there's a whole fucking rainforest mountain called El Junque here in Puerto Rico, and it's gorgeous, right? There's no, like, predators or anything dangerous out there, so it's fine. So you basically hike through the, the jungle, which is cool, and it's really scenic and beautiful. And then there's some rivers and stuff, and you walk through the rivers, and sometimes you, like, do rappelling down the, the, the waterfalls, and sometimes you do some zip lining and stuff like that. But it's, like, basically hiking and walking through rivers and shit like that. It's so much fun. Actually, I think you'd like it if you like hiking. Dude, that actually sounds awesome. That actually sounds like that might be something high higher on my list. Like my my buddies are trying to convince me. They were trying to convince me to do Amsterdam um, because I did oh. an Amsterdam trip a couple of years ago, and I, do I, mean, I love Amsterdam. Amsterdam. It's my it's my favorite. It is my favorite city in the entire world. Yeah, but like all the COVID stuff, I don't think it's really worth traveling outside of the country. Um, yeah. like, you know, they were also trying to convince me to go to Dublin, as Dublin, if, if not Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, I'm happy with doing a hiking trip. So, um, if you're saying it's like fun hiking and like a place that people want to go to, that that might be what I do. It's, it's cool, man, and you don't need a passport or anything like that. I have a and, translator. You know, you don't even need me. <laughs> you know, I know you don't speak English here. <laughs> I speak. I can kind of. I can kind of understand Spanish a little bit, but I, I'm kind of. I'm not good. Um, I'm horrible with languages. All right, so I, let's just um, I could get to the episode. So yeah, this I guess, will, so. I guess we'll this is type kind of a, a part three in our or I, I think this episode will stand alone in its own episode. So I don't think you have to feel pressure to go listen to the other two episodes on the breakup of Yugoslavia that we did because I do think this will stand alone as its own thing. However, it is kind of part three of of the breakup of Yugoslavia. Yep. Um So about a couple couple of weeks ago, we did an episode on just like high-level overview of Yugoslavia, the rise and fall of it, um, the breakup of all the different republics. And then the follow-up episode to that, we did it on the Bosnian War. So in the secession of Bosnia um, from from um, 
from Yugoslavia and the war that that um, that happened and the ultimate intervention from NATO. And we obviously left a lot of things out because it's such a complicated mess. You know, it's the, the balkanization of a region is always uh, going to be really complicated and there's going to be so many different sides of the story. So we were kind of narrowing it down to Bosnia last episode. And people have said to me, well, why don't you talk about Kosovo? Well, because Kosovo, it would have been really, it would have been more confusing if we included, um, you know, the the ethnic sectarianism against uh, the in, in Kosovo between you know the Albanians and, and the and the Serbs there, and uh, so we try to kind of zero it down on just Bosnia. And on this episode, we're going to focus on on Kosovo and, and the ultimate intervention in, in uh, 1999 by NATO. And it's going to sound, you know, as we go through this, you know, we're going to go over familiar history so things that we talked about but i guess we're going to try to hit this in a different angle and strictly cover the the ethnic crisis between serbs and albanians and in kosovo yeah no that's that sounds great and i just wanted to make one remark that i that i uh mentioned to you just before we started recording and that's that you know after you know doing all these episodes on you know the the balkans i think i really really like it it's it's helping me to understand geopolitics better because i feel like you know, this whole Balkans region over the last 40 years has encountered pretty much every like trope that we've covered on this show. I mean, I'm talking about like changing political dynamics, like going from communism to, you know, capitalism or, you know, elements of the Cold War or, you know, World War Two, World War One, you know, uh, ethnic divides, uh, uh, other sectarian divides, um, religious divides, like, you know, NATO, NATO like interventions, NATO, NATO expansion, um, like, like all of this shit that we talk about on the show. I feel like um, those those themes, uh, ter- terrorism, Terrorism. Um, I forgot about terrorism. terrorism. Yeah. And, and then we're going to get into organ trafficking later, too, in this episode. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's something even, I don't even think we've touched on that very much on the show. But yeah. still, still super crazy. And I, I just think that this this region is so fascinating. And I knew very little about it before we started you know, doing the research on it. And I'm so happy that we did it because I feel like this is like a good, you know, um, reference point now for when we cover other regions and other conflicts because we can use this as a reference point you know for other uh uh regional instabilities yeah you know i think you can learn a lot of lessons here um in yugoslavia um, when it comes to looking at the middle east when it comes to looking at russia uh, when it comes to looking at i mean even in america right now with all the talk of uh potential balkanization so um, you know, I guess I'll just get back, you know, should I start with just like the early history of it and, and start yeah. from there? And then, um, mm-hmm. not, I'm not going to do as an extensive, um, overview of the early history of the region on the, pre- as in the previous episodes, but just kind of like the, the quick synopsis. So, you know, you yeah. know, we could kind of set up the future conflict or the conflict of that place that ultimately takes place in the late nineties. So, um, real quick, the lands that made up Yugoslavia, going back thousands of years, were part of the Roman Empire. It was called the province of Illyricum. And Serbs and other Slavic tribes migrated into the Balkans around the 6th century or so. Um, so Serbian historians at this time, they say that there is no Albanians living in Kosovo. And what Albanian historians say is that 
Albanians are the descendants of the ancient Illyrians of the region who are in Greek texts and whatnot. Okay, so that sounds a lot to me like all of the ancient histories that try to point back to one direct lineage like the Chinese or like the Japanese and things like that. Is this true? I have no clue. So it's <laughs> I have absolutely no idea if that is true or not or how if you know the Albanians today can trace their their lineage lineage back to the ancient um, Illyrians there or um, you know if there's actually firm evidence that you know the South Slavics that settled there are the descendants. You know maybe it could be true. You know you'd have to really ask somebody who's um, who under who's an historian in in this who has a specialty in this uh, time period and mm-hmm. you know the ancient world and migrations of humans. You know it, I, it that this is just what historians are saying. And a lot of times history is um, used for um, you know used for the state or for nationalistic purposes. Right. Um, you know everybody so wants I think to stake a claim to a particular day. patch of ground. You know, yeah. and they the way that they do it is like, oh, I was here since fucking. Moses times, <laughs> you know, like I was here since forever. So exactly, you know, we have um, our great great ancestors were here since for five thousand years. Um, right. You know, they had an ancient kingdom there, and we're the descendants of that ancient kingdom, and you know all that stuff. It gets very hazy as you go further and further back. Um, so I, maybe it's true. Maybe maybe there's somebody it's who's possible. listening to this right now. It's like fuck you guys i know everybody's got to come from somewhere great 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 what's that everybody's got to come from somewhere right so it's it's equally possible i have an idea of what my ancestry is so you know i'm i I just tell people i'm irish and polish irish Mm -hmm. on my mom's side and polish on my dad's side um Mm -hmm. but my dad's side who was polish they were poles from you from kiev Mm. who they lived in kiev they were poles there and then they were forced out during the Soviet, uh, my grandfather was super old. He was uh, born in 1910 and had my father late in his life. So he oh, was shit. an old father. So he was born mm-hmm. in 1910. If, if he was still alive, he'd be like a hundred and something. Twelve. Hundred and twelve. Um, he was a Ukraine. He lived in Ukraine. His family was based in Kiev. And then um, his property was seized um, during the, the Bolshevik Revolution. And he um, moved to France as a, as a nine-year-old. So, you know, it gets kind of weird on that line, too. I could even say, hey, listen, like, I'm the descendant. My descendants own this property. You know, imagine if, like, I went back and that old estate that they lived in was right. used as, like, a multifamily house where a bunch of people lived there. And mm-hmm. I was like, my grandfather lived in this house. It's mine now. All you guys are evicted. Like, that would just right? be insane, imagine. right? I mean, that's getting a little off off the point. Um, and, and let's just fast forward real quick for, you know, just so we can get to the conflict. Because we have a lot to cover. Um, okay. So in, in the late 12th century, there was this great Serbian king king named uh, King Nemanja. And um, he conquered Kosovo from the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, Kosovo becomes the center of the Serbian state. And uh, Serbia reaches its, its zenith, its uh, medieval zenith, under uh, King Stefan Dusan in the 1300s. And, you know, they create this um, great Serbian empire. And it includes... Um, all of Kosovo, northern Albania, Macedonia, and then, and then a lot of Greece. And what eventually happens is that the Serbian Empire, it starts to decline due to the squabbling among uh, Stefan Dusan's successors. And uh, they're eventually swallowed up by the Ottoman Empire. 
Um, you know, we spoke about this a bunch already, but, you know, the Battle of Kosovo, um, you know, the Serbs are defeated by the Turks. And, uh, you know, most of the stories surrounding the Battle of Kosovo, they they seem more to be mythology rather than, than history. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, historians even say, you know, between Serbian and Albanian historians, a lot of them even say that they were fighting each other during this battle. You know, the Albanians there were Ottoman proxies and stuff like that. So right. the Serbs were actually, you know, this this uh, um, ethnic um, conflict goes back um, centuries, you know, back to the 1300s. You know, once again, I have no clue if this is, if this is true or not. Um, you know, you'd have to consult with a historian who most likely specializes in this in this region. Um, nevertheless, the Battle of Kosovo, it's, is, um, you know, it's very significant to... Serbian national identity. The, the day is um, celebrated as St. Vitus Day. And, um, you know, we went over this as well. A lot of notable events in Serbian history uh, fall on this day, which is uh, right. June 28th. So um, on um, 1876, Serbia declares, um, declared war on the Ottoman Empire, which led to their independence. Um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated on uh, June 28th, 1914. And then there's a lot of other you know, special events or important events in Serbian history that fall on the date, June 28th. Now, um, in 1689, Austrian forces, they temporarily, they seize Kosovo from the Ottomans and local Serbs end up joining forces with them to fight the Turks. However, they end up losing the war and this causes a massive uh, flux of refugees from Kosovo to Hungary. Mm. And then um, there was another Austrian expedition in, in, uh, in Kosovo in, in the year 1737 where the same exact thing basically happens. Uh, the local Serbs join with the Austrians, they fight, they lose, and then there is a forced <coughs> migration. Right. So uh, Serbian historians, they claim that the shift from a predominantly Serbian population in Kosovo to a mainly ethnic Albanian population it begins at this time. Um, Albanians, they allegedly, they, they migrate from, you know, the poor uh, mountainous regions of northern Albania into the more fertile uh, plains of Kosovo. Um, you know, other, other historians are saying that this shift started much earlier and it and occurred more gradually. Um, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I, you know, I don't think these things really, really matter when it comes to the, you know, the current conflicts. Now, I, I think I think it just sounds like a lot of people were moving around in this particular yeah, it region, just, like a whole lot, it, it, you know, it, it does. And I'm sure there's truth to people being expelled from the city because, you know, there's there's um, in European history, forced migrations was something that was pretty common. Yeah. So I'm sure there there absolutely was. But I'm sure there was just you know, there's a lot of reasons why people migrate from one place to another. Um, but um, so what's important to note is that the Albanians in Kosovo, the majority of them, they convert to Islam. Right. Although the, there, there is still a largely Roman Catholic minority that exists mostly in that northwest of Kosovo region. Yeah, exactly. And the reason why, it's important to note the reason why a lot of people converted to Islam. Um, they took place to avoid a jizya. And a jizya is a tax on non-Muslims. Um, jizya, jizya. I barely even know ya. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. 
Uh, I feel like, you know, contrary to popular belief, though, most Muslim empires weren't like fanatical in terms of killing non-Muslims. You know, they, they often just wanted, you know, natives to stick around because they can tax them. And, you know, they didn't want those natives to convert because it would it would hurt their tax base. But just wondering out loud here, I wonder if having that special tax on non-Muslims actually unintentionally creates the conditions by which so many ethnic Albanians end up converting. Maybe we could say that taxation is actually the root of all of the conflict here. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Well, if you look at even the Arab Empire, a lot of um, parts of the Arab Empire, because, you know, when, when the Arab Empire actually conquers northern Africa, mm-hmm. most people don't convert to Islam. And right. it, it was because the um, bureaucracy, the people who are running it, understood that their tax base would be um, shrunken. It would it would it would evaporate. So right. um, they, but actually they still had jizya. ruled over a, a very um, like a lot of Christians and they ruled over a lot of um, pagans, like a lot of the northern a lot of the, the you know, uh, communities in northern Africa were not yet um, Muslim yet. That act, that Muslim transition comes comes actually a lot later. Um, more, there, more, there's more. It, um, is you know, um, Islam. Why can't I even say this word? Islamization. I suck at saying words. There's Islamin- more people convert to Islam in the Ottoman Empire. Islamization. Yeah. Um, during the Ottoman Empire than 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 the actual Arab Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know that well, that's why. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, well, maybe you could just tell us a bit more about the the region under the Ottoman rule, because that's that's the important bit for this. Yeah. So um, in the early 1800s, um, you know, parts of Serbia near Belgrade became uh, semi-autonomous within the within the Ottoman Empire. Um, if you look at Serbian history for, you know, throughout the 1800s, it's like this, it's, it's actually really, really, uh, um, chaotic. Like there's a bunch of different Kings who are assassinated. They all have different loyalties and they're, they're all kind of like puppets to different empires. And it's a, it's a real mess. And we've actually, we, we've covered this in our, in our world war one episodes because a lot of it has to do with the lead up to it. But, um, to give you the long story, uh, to make a long story short, in 1833, Serbia received uh, full autonomy and in a, in a, in more territory as a result of an agreement reached with the Ottomans under Russian pressure. Um, Russian, the Russian Empire um, always kind of had camaraderie with the Southern Slavs and in, in the Balkan regions, and mm-hmm. um, you know Serbia kind of saw them as like their big brother. So they would actually negotiate on behalf of them in a lot of a lot of conflicts. Um, um, however, Kosovo remained in Ottoman hands until the Russian-Turkish War, which uh, which Russia wins. So um, Russia imposed the Treaty of San Stefano, which created a a Greater Bulgaria and assigned parts of what is now Kosovo to Serbia and Montenegro. Um, now. Ethnic Albanians obviously didn't like this. You know, they're they are um, the majority there at this point, and in response, Albanian leaders formed the League of Prizren um, on June eighteenth, seventy eight, um, or June uh, June um, eighteen seventy eight. Excuse me, with the aim of uh, consolidating 
um, Albanian inhabited lands into one province within the, within, within the Ottoman Empire. Um, they were trying to, they were calling this a greater Albania. All right. So side note, what's up with this like greater Albania, greater Serbia, greater, you know, greater insert country name here? Like it, it just, I don't know. It's, it just sounds like everyone in, in the region wants more and more, right? And they want to expand and, and they want to make claims on more things. And every time I hear this like greater insert country name, I get like this bad taste in my no- mouth. It, like, am I, am I like nuts or am I onto something? No, it's it's um, you hear that that phrase a lot, like greater Israel, for example, you mm-hmm. hear a lot. You, yeah. Greater Serbia. It I guess it takes it, it can mean different things. Um, I guess the most common way it's used is just like a country that 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 it um, its influence expands upon its actual like national borders um, mm-hmm. to the regions that are close by. But I guess it also can include like. You know, a, a sovereign nation state that also governs the nearby diasporas that are the diaspora of that nation state that are not actually in that nation state. Um, it could right. just mean to expand your borders to cover um, wherever um, your diaspora reaches. So uh, in, in a context of like a greater Serbia, the way that they were talking was that, you know, they wanted to expand their borders to everywhere they were. The language that was used was. Anywhere Serb lives is Serbia, meaning right. that you know Serbs were spread out everywhere, not just in Serbia. They were anywhere there was Croatia, a church. They were they were yeah wherever wherever exactly that was that's what they whatever there was a an Eastern Orthodox church um, because a lot of it was broken down by religion in that region too. You know the Serbs were Eastern Orthodox, the Albanians and Bosnians were Muslims, uh, um, Croatians were were Catholic, Slovenians were Catholic, and. Um, so a lot of it was kind of broken down by a sectarian divide as well. So um, that was the language that they were using. They were saying, hey, wherever there is an Eastern Orthodox Church, that's Serbia. Um, whenever, wherever there's a Serb, that's, Ser- that's Serbia. So that's kind of the context of, of how they use the, that- the greater. I think in like the context of greater Israel, I guess the way that they use it is that wherever they can find like old Jewish temples and things like that or old synagogues or... Um, artifacts of where they can see that uh you know uh the the ancient israelites used to live would be would be considered israel one comparison that i saw and this this is relevant for kosovo and israel is that that kosovo is like serbia's jerusalem and that's why they don't want to recognize kosovo as a thing right now um and yeah i mean they've they've got history there um and and that's why this particular this particular conflict is so kind of hard to navigate because they they do legitimately have a long history there, but also you know the the demographics don't make sense anymore, and or probably never made any sense in the first place, and you know like they don't want to give up what they think was historically theirs, and you know that might not reflect the realities on the ground today, or or even the realities on the ground for several hundred years. You know, it's just weird. It's, it's a it's a weird situation. Yeah, and in, in the case of the Serbians, if you want to play the identity politics game, Serbians are a group of people that have been abused a lot by the Ottoman Empire. Um, you know, before the Ottomans, the Eastern Romans, the Ottoman Empire, um, and then obviously, the um, yeah, the Nazis that in World War II. Mm-hmm. 
So they they do actually have a lot of historic gripes, um, and um, you can understand why nationalism will will form there, the, where where hardcore nationalism will form there. Um, and you can also understand why the, the, these nationalist movements would form among the Albanian population there as well, right? Because for, you know, for if you favor, reasons. yeah, for similar reasons. And when you favor one group, it forces the other group to band together and mm-hmm. to to uh, compete at, with you know with the opposing nationalism and nationalistic movements that um, you know may may be harmful to them. Um, but where was I? Congress of Berlin, I think. Um, right? Yeah. Or I was about yeah, to get I into the so. Congress of Berlin. So Congress of Berlin. So um, big conference with all the European powers. This takes place in July of 1878. Um, I guess one of the main, a lot of borders and things were drawn during this conference. But um, as it relates to Kosovo, um, a lot of the, the greater powers were alarmed at Russia's gains in the region in their previous wars. So they end up forcing a reduction in the size of Bulgaria. And then they uh, took um, Albanian inhabited lands away from Serbia and Montenegro and gave them back to the Turks. However, Serbia had been permitted to keep other territories they had seized. Um, The Congress of Berlin is actually when Serbia received its formal independence from the Ottoman Empire. That's right. Now, um, in October 1912, Serbia, Montenegro, Greece, Bulgaria, they all gang up together and they attack the, the Turks and they set off the first Balkan War there. Um, Turkish forces were, were defeated and uh, virtually the entire Balkan Peninsula was liberated from Ottoman control. Um, and then Serbian forces, they then um, seized Kosovo um, and part of what is now Albania, parts of Albania, um, but then, after pressure by several of the of the you know other countries and um, like several of the, several of the European great powers, Serbia was forced to give up some of those territories, and an independent Albania was actually created at this time. Um, however, Kosovo was still in Serbian hands, and Serbia nearly doubled in size as a result of its gains in the Balkan Wars. Um, but that's 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 because of the Russian involvement, though, right? Like, yeah, they didn't it do was, that on their own. Yeah, well, yeah, Russian. It was you know Russia kind of was uh, their their um, was kind of negotiating on their behalf. <laughs> right. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, w- the next major event that happens, um, you know, we all, we all know what this event is. It's um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated by by Serb nationalists, a Serb, Serbian nationalist group in Sarajevo. Um, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia in July this starts World War One. Um, Serbia actually puts up a pretty good fight against the the Austro-Hungarian Empire, despite being a very poor country. Serbia was in, was was um, considered like the, I think was the poorest country in Europe at this time, mm. and they had a small population, but they had a really good officer corps. Um, they had a very good military school in Belgrade, so they actually were winning battles in the beginning of the war against a much larger army, but. They eventually lose because uh, Bulgaria turns against them. Um, you know, they Bulgaria joins the Central Powers, and um, you know they're trying to actually retake land it lost in another conflict called the Second Balkan War. Um, there was multiple Balkan Wars in, in this time period. Um, so many. Bulgaria lost some lands to Serbia, but um, as in tradition, back to World War One, Serb the Serbian army makes their last stand in Kosovo and. And uh, you know many of the Serbs they retreat across the northern mountains of Albania, and then they make it to the Adriatic Sea, and then they're actually evacuated by Allied warships. But lucky for them, you know the Allies end up winning the war. Or, or unlucky for them, because the entire region ends up going to like total chaos. Yeah, well, you know the next the next couple of decades are pretty bad, even, yeah. even despite the. But they're bad for everyone in Europe after the war. So um, after World War One and after the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, the, there's a multinational state of Yugoslavia that's patched together. And the initial name of this is called the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. Um, they, they annex old Austro- Austro-Hungarian lands. Um, they annex, uh, so Slovenia and Croatia, they were part of the... the, uh, the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, previously, and then they also annexed the uh, ethnically Croatian and Serbian lands of Bosnia, um, Montenegro, Macedonia, and then also Kosovo. And uh, you know these these nationalities they coexisted in a state of mutual hostility, which provokes a royal dictatorship by King Alexander in 1929, um, where um, the name is actually officially changed to the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. And um, during this time period, there was a large-scale effort to settle Serbs in Kosovo um, in an effort to uh, start diluting the, the ethnic Albanian majority in the region. But this, this royal um, dictatorship, it sparks even more resentment from other nationalities, and it, it leads to the assassination of King Alexander in, in 1934 um, by, uh, by the pro-Bulgarian Internal Macedonian Revolutionary Organization. Save that five times fast. Pro-Bulgarian pro- internal... No, not going to happen. Pro-Bulgarian <laughs> pro internal Bul- Macedonian revolutionary organization. Pro-Bulgarian internal Macedonian revolutionary... No. You got it. Words. All right. Yeah. Um, 
And to make things more confusing is that this group was allegedly financed by fascist Italy over um, their own interest in Albania. Um, this was actually so, that, that the first assassination that was caught on camera. And it was crazy. Yeah, we, we were actually talking about uh, this reviewed other... that on, on our last episode on, on Bosnia, I think it was, right? Yeah, when we did our episode in the Bosnian War, we spoke about this. It was the first. We actually played some of the clips in it. Um, it's, yeah. it's interesting. Just the it's the first assassination caught on camera. Kids can the camera. Oh, and, and you king won't Alexander believe has what happens shot. to this king. King Alexander has been shot. The crowds oh, want to kill the shot. gunmen. He's been shot. The royal wedding has been quite a disaster. We now go back to our programming. Um, so, um, okay, another thing that's really interesting about this, I don't want to forget this, uh, Mussolini. So Italy has heavy interest in Albania due to, um, you know, mainly because, you know, if you look at Italy on a map, if you look at Albania on a map, right. and they're right next to each across. other. Yeah, they're right they're, across they're the close. They're right across the water. So, you know, they they um, saw Albania as like a strategic port city, or not a port city, but a place. They, they had strategic ports there uh, that helped them, you know, control the Adriatic Sea. Um, and then, you know, Italian fascists, they claimed that Albanians were linked through some ethnic heritage to Italians because, you know, Rome once governed the region. Um, you know, another, another story of... Uh, the state using historians to, you know, justify um, annexing or influence in some territory. Yep. But this this leads to Italy's eventual occupation of Albania um, in 1939, um, right before the World War II breaks out. Um, and then, you know, at, when World War II does break out, Germany invades Yugoslavia um, in April of 1941, and the Yugoslavian army it collapses in about 10 days. And what the Axis okay, powers do sure. is they transfer Kosovo uh, to Albania. And Kosovo becomes this site of very intense fighting um, and horrible crimes against humanity among a bunch of different actors. So, um, you know, the main forces that you have there in this, in these, in this war, you know, this, this war that's the smaller war in World War II, because I guess you can kind of look at World War II as a bunch of like, big wars going on at the same time it's it's um right you smaller have, uh, theaters popping up here and there smaller theaters pretty much everywhere in the world but you have serbian royalists who are loyal to the monarchy there there and then you have um the the communist partisans who were the most su- successful group there and then um you have german and italian occupation forces and then you have the uh, the ethnic Albanian groups that were allied with with the the Germans and Italians and um, many of these Albanian nationalists were actually part of uh, the 21st Waffen Mountain Division of uh, of the SS um, and you know they allegedly unleashed very brutal ethnic cleansing campaigns on Serbs and Jews um, in in Kosovo and in Bosnia hmm. so um, this this brings us to um to tito um who ends up being the dominant group in kosovo after the war are the communist partisans um, under joseph bras tito um and tito makes kosovo and a autonomous province within serbia um and then serbia being the largest republic in the new socialist federal federal republic of yugoslavia um and then you know um unhappy with this arrangement 
the ethnic Albanians in Kosovo, they start pushing uh, for Kosovo to become its own republic on par with Serbia. Now, um, in 1974, and we touched on this um, in our last episode, but Yugoslavia adopts a new constitution. Um, the new constitution gave Kosovo, in many, in, in many respects, de facto republic status, um, therefore an equal footing with Serbia. And um, it, ethnic Albanians, they took over leading posts in, in the local government and then also right. in, in, within the economy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kosovo, it starts to receive large subsidies as part of a federal plan to equalize the differences um, and, 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 um, and um, income disparity. You know, they're trying to bridge uh, the gap between the rich and the poor areas. Did the Albanians in Kosovo ever try to, like, just make a thing with Albania prior, though? Yeah, well, that we're going to get into that. So um, some did, but here's the thing. Most of them prefer to be part of Yugoslavia because... Um, most of the ethnic Albanians wanted to be part of, uh, they, they preferred to be part of Yugoslavia because they were freer there and they had a higher standard of living um, in, as part of Yugoslavia because Albania in the 1970s was the poorest country in Europe. Hmm. They had a very brutal communist regime um, and they were freer in Yugoslavia. I mean, despite... You know, we, we were talking about this last when we in our last episodes, but yeah. Yugoslavia was a communist country, but they were kind of a quasi-communist country. They had a lot more levels of... Uh, uh, they were a lot uh, more open. They were a lot more open than, you know, the Soviet Union, for example, or, or other communist countries. They had, you know, forms of privatizations of different industries right. and things like that. So they the economy had- was better. Yeah, they also had like um, higher standard of living, as you said, like more um, uh, like literacy rates and like better, like they had free education and free health care and like a bunch of like perks and shit for living there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it would make sense, you know, to just want to stick with that. But that didn't last very long, did it? Yeah. So, um, well, the reason it doesn't last very long is when the government gives privileges to one ethnic group over another, it usually causes resentment. Well, I think that rule applies uh, to pretty much everything, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it really does apply. I mean, think about this. Let's just say if you have two kids and then you give one kid special treatment and the other kid nothing. You neglect the other kid. The other kid's probably going to have some form of resentment. I think right. the same rule applies if you, um, you know, favor some ethnic group over another one. Mm-hmm. Um, it just causes nationalism rise on the other side, um, and you know, nationalism was rising among ethnic Albanians. The the, the uh, resentment of the Serb minority in Kosovo um, at the um, you know Albanization of uh, of Kosovo it, it increased. So um, Serbs were saying that they were being discriminated against by the Albanians. And they were even saying that they are being ethnically cleansed. And if you look at statistics, there is a clear shift in the demographics of Kosovo at this time. And um, so I got wrote this down. In 1961, Serbs made up 23.6% of Kosovo's population. And then in 1998, right before the war breaks out, um, they were under 10% of the population. 
Okay, um, so like a 13.6% drop. Was this like a forced cleansing or did the Serbians just leave on their own accord for some reason? Well, I think that answer is different on ba- based on who you ask. Okay, I guess so, yeah. I think if you ask the uh, you know Albanians, they'll be like, no, they left for economic reasons. And then you know the Serbians will say, hey, no, you were ethnically cleansed there. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, let's fast forward this because uh, we still got to get into the war. Yeah, well, so the truth is that Tito's- there was a shift in, po- in demographic population, right? Like nobody yes. disagrees with that, right? Yes. So um, after Tito's death in 1980, the decentralized political system he put in place gradually began to fail. And there were um, increasingly open power struggles within Yugoslav's political elite. And um, Albanian nationalism was still very strong. So um, there's a student protest at Pristina University that escalates into a riot. And uh, protesters at this university, they actually started calling for republic status for Kosovo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, some demonstrators were even calling for a union, union with Albania, like you had mentioned earlier. Um, but this riot was put down, um, you know, allegedly pretty brutally um, by the Yugoslav police, resulting in, you know, several deaths. Um, but I guess these, these riots, what they ultimately do is they reinforce the fears that ethnic Albanians wanted to secede from Yugoslavia, uh, you know, with, with uh, the territory of Kosovo. So more Serbs started calling for the reassertion of control of, of, uh, of Kosovo. And um, this is where uh, you have Slobodin uh, Milosevic come in. During a visit to Kosovo in April of 1987, a Serbian Communist Party official named Slobodin Milosevic, he gives this very rousing nationalistic speech to Serbs in, in Kosovo it, and basically, the speech was, I'm paraphrasing it, but he was saying, hey, listen, like, you don't have to be abused by those Albanians anymore. I have your back. You know, we're going to, the, the government here in Yugoslavia is going to make sure that the Albanians don't get away with their crimes and stuff like that. Right. I'm paraphrasing it, but essentially it was kind of like a rousing speech that was catering to the Serb minority there. And this speech, it launches his political career. Um, well, his career as a major political figure, at the very least, and he's later on elected president of Serbia. Um, and over the next two years, um, the number uh, there's a number of laws that are passed that limit Kosovo's autonomy. So he he encouraged Serbs to settle in Kosovo uh, through through jobs and financial um, incentives. Um, Albanian government jobs were replaced by Serbs. Um, just you know, ethnic nepotism at its worst. You, you know, he, right. Milosevic is a humongous scumbag. Now, the um, destruction of Kosovo's autonomy, what it does is it provokes unease in other republics of Yugoslavia. They fear <coughs> that they could potentially be the next victims of Milosevic's, Milosevic's nationalistic policies. And for this reason, a lot of analysts will say that um, his moves in Kosovo um, lit the fuse that eventually resulted in the larger breakup of Yugoslavia because the other republics were like, hey, you know, if he's going to crack down on Kosovo like this, he could crack down like this, crack down on us like this. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe we should get out of this union. So um, there's other reasons, too. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but, you know, that's that's uh, that's uh, that's what some analysts will say about the breakup. 
Now, um, he concedes Slovenia pretty quickly. There's like a brief conflict, but he does concede Slovenia. Um, but then it escalates in Croatia um, because there's more Serbs in Croatia. Um, but meanwhile, ethnic Serbs joined with Yugoslavian troops to seize about one-third of Kosovo. Now, um, you know, feeling that autonomy within Yugoslavia was no longer a viable option, ethnic Albanians, they held a referendum on independence for Kosovo. And um, independence was approved by their underground parliament um, in 1991. Um, so just to give you a little bit of context on underground parliament, they, they um, when a lot of these uh, kind of Serb favoritist policies were set in by Milosevic, um, there was a government, there was a parallel government that was created that was underground. Like they had, the, the Albanians created their own um um, like underground parliament, and you know they they voted on this, and um, it, the people who were relieved from their post, they formed this government. Now, um, a guy named Ibrahim Rogova is the leader of the the Democratic League of Kosovo. Um, he was later elected president, but the parallel parliament and government were prevented from actually functioning in Kosovo by Serbian police. So uh, this is when the cert, when the Albanians started looking to the international community to get some sort of political resolve. However, you know there is political resolve going somewhere right now, but it's focused on Bosnia. Um, at this time, the Bosnian War is wrapping up. Um, the Dayton <coughs> Peace Agreement in 1995 that ends the Bosnian War it doesn't touch Kosovo. It doesn't involve Kosovo at all. So this leads to in 1996, a group called the Kosovo Liberation Army, uh, the KLA, and they come to public after claiming responsibility for killing several Serbian policemen um, along with some other government officials. And mm-hmm. in response, um, the Serb police, they, um, you know, they were angered by the death of their comrades they allegedly launched this massive assault on a village in a you know in an Albanian village, where the um, Serbian police um, you know killed and massacred a bunch of people. So um, what this ultimately does it causes blowback because a lot a lot of ethnic Albanians were were outraged by. Um, what they saw was a uh, systemic campaign to um, eradicate Albanians. Um, and um, this causes more Albanians to join a KLA. Right. But what's interesting is that the KLA was on the U.S. State Department list of terrorist organizations. So that part I didn't actually know, which I find very fascinating. And, and I'll get more into the details about the KLA because I think you'll find a lot of this interesting. Um, but wh- why don't we jump into the um, the U.S. intervention and how that all happens? Sure. Yeah, I, I can take this. So the Operation uh, Allied Force began somewhere around like uh, March of 1999. And after about a year of effort by the international community that was led by NATO uh, to find like a negotiated solution in Kosovo, 
um, basically in 98 of uh, June of 98, NATO defense ministers decided to charge NATO planners with the responsibility to uh, produce a military strategy that, um, you know, in case the diplomatic processes fail. Um, according to Human Rights Watch, and I'll just read from them real quickly. Um, so by the fall, uh, an estimated 250,000 Kosovo Albanians had been driven from their homes and some 50,000 were threatened by approaching winter weather. The United Nations Security Council adopted a resolution 1199 on September 23rd highlighting the impending human catastrophe and demanding a ceasefire and the start of a real political dialogue. A contact group meeting in London on October 8th gave U.S. envoy Richard Holbrook a mandate to secure the agreement to the requirements of UNSCR 1199 in a mission to Belgrade. Activation orders for airstrikers were agreed on October 13th, the same day Holbrook reported to NATO that Slobodan Milosevic, president of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, had agreed to the deployment of unarmed, excuse me, armed, no, unarmed organization for security and uh, cooperation in Europe, OSCE. Oh yeah, I remember them. Uh, verification mission to Kosovo and to the establishment of a NATO aerial verification mission. Yugoslavia also agreed to reduce their numbers of security forces personnel in Kosovo to pre-crisis levels. Despite the initial stabilization, violence continued following a massacre in the village of Rakak Rachak, on January 15, 1999. Uh, NATO increased its state of readiness, issuing a solemn warning to Milosevic and the Kosovo Albanian leadership on January 28th. This was followed by a second statement on January 30th that reaffirmed NATO's original demands and delegated to Security General Javier Solana authority to commence airstrikes against uh, targets on Fry territory. Parties to talks at Rambouillet in France uh, in February of 99 uh, attempted to build agreements to protect the rights of all sides. After the first round of talks was suspended on February 23rd, a second round of was convened on March 15th. The second round was suspended on March 19th in the light of what NATO intelligence and OSCE observers saw as intensifying violence on the ground instigated by Fry security forces and a buildup of Fry Serbian forces around in and around Kosovo. OSCE verifiers were withdrawn during the night of March 19th to 20th. And Holbrook flew to Belgrade on March 22nd in a last-ditch effort to persuade Milosevic to back down and avoid a military confrontation. On March 23rd, following final consultations with allies, Javier Solana directed NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, so Saucer, uh, General Wesley Clark to initiate a phased air operation. So, yeah, that's what the Human Rights Watch says about that. It's pretty fascinating, well, actually, how many times they try to to talk it out before they actually went with you know military action well you know milosevic he absolutely was a very brutal autocrat mm-hmm. and you know he regular he regularly regularly murdered and uh repressed his political opponents um but that being said he becomes a perfect target target for nato um you know when nato is Usually, when they're looking for new for a new Hitler, um, kind of oh, like, like a Saddam like, Hussein. Yep, <laughs> I was just gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, but he, he does kind of feel like that Gaddafi part. He's somewhere. like this kind yeah. of br- yeah. He's like a mafia scumbag. Bureau, like he's a mafia scumbag nationalist. 
um, who, um, you know, obviously has clear kind of uh, um, discriminatory policies against one group. And um, you know he can't be reasoned with, and right, and he's you know, just a dick. I, if you look mm-hmm. at old, if you look at like articles from antiwar.com from like peace activists, they're like, oh my god, we're trying. This guy is such an idiot. Like this guy is the worst cause for the anti-war movement ever because he's such a moron. This guy is and such a complete like just jackass, and he just undermines us trying to. Like he's the the worst enemy of us trying to like say that we shouldn't intervene in this conflict because he's just such a dopey idiot. But um, I think it's important to look at the whole the whole picture and um, you know why they why you know NATO said that they intervene. Um, here's an excerpt expert from um, a report by Dick Marty of the Council of Europe. Um, the Council of Europe's investigative team looking into war crimes. So the appalling crimes committed by Serbian forces, which stirred up very strong feelings worldwide, gave rise to a mood reflected as well in the attitude of certain international agencies, according to to which it was invariably one side that were regarded as the perpetrators of crimes and the other side of the victims, thus necessarily innocent. The reality is less clear-cut and more complex. So, um, just to go back, on March 24th, 1999, a U.S.-NATO intervention was launched under the Responsibility to Protect uh, Clause, and it was asserted mainly by Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. And for 78 days, NATO targeted targeted what is, uh, you know, then called the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, um, you know, what, what they were called after the Socialist Republic of Yugoslavia. Um, you know, they were bombing them over, you know, alleged atrocities against ethnic Albanians in Kosovo. Mm-hmm. And I know this is confusing. Um, you know, the Federal this, Republic this of, of Yugoslavia <laughs> was, just Serbi- yeah. was just Serbia and Montenegro. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the country that was created after the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia dissolved in the early 1990s. Um, but the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia splits into Serbia and Montenegro in, in 2003. Um, but NATO drops 23,000 bombs and, and um, they kill around. Well, Human Rights Watch concludes that as few as 489 and as many as 528 civilians died in the bombings. I don't know the exact... I've seen larger, the larger figures, but... Um, well, I don't, human rights watches, you know, they're kind of a mixed bag sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, they do some good reporting. They do some not good reporting. They're, they're a mixed bag. Um, but like, you know, every, every intervention, there was a very big push from the state and the media to, to justify the intervention. Um, so here's where things get very weird in the in the U.S. media landscape and also the British landscape. Um, so Secretary of Defense William Cohen, he told CBS News on Face the Nation, uh, we've now seen about 100,000 military-aged men missing. They, have, they may have been murdered. And then this have. is from The Guardian. They may have been murdered. Um, David Sheffer, the U.S. envoy for war crimes issues, 
put the figure even higher. He told reporters at NATO headquarters on May 18th last year that more hunt that more than 225,000 ethnic Albanian men between the ages of 14 and 59 were were unaccounted for. Um, you know, Madeleine Albright was one of the big push uh, big pushers of the war. Um, and then, you know, back in, and I think it's important to note, so in, in the 90s, um, CNN was, almost had like a monopoly on like the international cable news, cable news universe. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, Christine um, Amanpour, she was the, given the leading role in reporting on the Kosovo War. And her husband, James Rubin, was a spokesperson for Madeleine Albright. And Madeleine Albright, she's the the sicko who went on 60 Minutes and said that, hey, um, when they were saying, hey, um, over half a million children died in Iraq due to the sanctions placed on them. She's like, yeah, it was fine. It was worth it. Wow. And we think it was worth it. Yeah. Wow. Which, you know, which which caused a lot of people to say, hey, maybe I should maybe I should join a group like Al-Qaeda. That would actually, that's how mad I am about, but that's how mad I am about, I am about that. Um, but, you know, these people, the media and um, the State Department, you know, they, they work together, they live together, um, and they often marry each other. <laughs> they they <laughs> yeah. often date and marry each other and become families. Um, and then, you know, the British press was really bad, too. Um, you know, Tony Blair... Uh, was invoking the Holocaust. Um, even Bernie Sanders was support support of the intervention. One of his yeah, aides actually of, resigned because of Bernie's support. Um, that part but, I found pretty fascinating. Know, I didn't actually know that. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Yeah, well, it was, it was a Democrat war, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. usually a lot of people just fall in line. What's interesting is that a lot, man, I forgot who said this, and I read this somewhere, but there was um, people saying that, hey, like we need to intervene in Kosovo because um, Albania and Kosovo, 
they could threaten Italy. They're right across. They're you know whatever sixty miles away in the Adriatic Sea or so. I'm not sure what the distance is. I'm just guessing sixty miles away. You know there could be a threat to Italy. Almost like when Ronald Reagan said that um, the Sandinistas could be a threat to uh, Texas, right? Like that kind of logic. Like they're gonna invade Italy or something. Like what? Yeah, I'm not gonna invade Italy. Yeah, (laughs) Um, about that. Now, in reality, I'm just gonna be blunt. All this was complete and utter horseshit. Like these, these were lies. So, um, yeah. contrary to, to NATO, um, they, they claimed that... So, NATO's claim was 100,000 or more Albanians were massacred by Serbians. Mm-hmm. And then post-war investigators, they found that fewer than 5,000 people died. 1,500 of which happened after NATO occupied uh, Kosovo. And uh, these were due to uh, pogroms by the Albanians. And a lot of these war crimes... Uh, were committed by the KLA, so the Kosovo Liberation Army. Uh, so here's a interesting quote that I highlighted from uh, Clint Williamson of the EU Special Investigative Task Force in regards to uh, reports that they released on, on war crimes. He told uh, reporters, Certain elements of the KLA intentionally targeted the minority populations with acts of persecution that included unlawful killings, abductions, and forced disappearances, aliens in camps in Kosovo and Albania, sexual violence, other forms of inhumane treatment, forced displacement of individuals from their homes and communities, and desecration and destruction of churches and other religious sites. Um, so this special investigative task force was set up in response to a book that was published by the former chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Tribunal. Um, her name was Carla DePont, um, and uh, she was an, she's an Italian. And the book's titled uh, The Hunt, which <coughs> the, book, the book claims that there was compelling evidence um, indicating that KL leaders had engaged in the trafficking of human organs obtained from prisoners of war. So you want to read some? I'll, I'll read some. Or do you want to read some of this book? I, I sent some of the book over to you, or do you want me to read it? Yeah, I can read it, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, All right, okay, so, I highlighted this. Yeah, I see it. Okay, so the prosecutor's office re- received information which UNMIK officials had received from a team of trustworthy journalists that during the summer months of 1999, Kosovo Albanians had transported 300 kidnapped people from Kosovo to Albania. These prisoners were initially held in sheds and other structures in the Kuks and Tripoji. According to the journalist sources, who were only identified as Kosovo Albanians, some of the younger and fitter prisoners were visited by doctors and were never hit. They were transferred to the other detention camps in Burrow and neighboring area, uh, one of which was a barracks behind a yellow house 20 kilometers behind the town. One room inside this yellow house, the journalist said, was kitted out as a makeshift operating theater, and it was here that the surgeons transplanted the organs of prisoners. These organs, according to uh, sources, uh, were then sent to Renus Airport, Tirana, to be sent to the surgical clinics abroad and to be transplanted to the paying patients. 
One of the informers had personally carried out a shipment to the airport. The victims, deprived of a kidney, were then locked up again inside the barracks until the moment they were killed for other vital organs. In this way, the other prisoners in the barracks were aware of the fate that awaited them and, according to the source, pleaded, terrifying, to be killed immediately. Uh, among the prisoners who were taken to these barracks were women from Kosovo, Albania, Russia, and other Slavic countries. Two of the sources say that they helped them bury the corpses of the dead around the Yellow House and in a neighboring cemetery. According to the sources, the organ smuggling was carried out with the knowledge and active involvement of a middle and high-ranking uh, involvement from the KLA. That's fucking nuts. That reads like a horror-like novel. That's yeah, crazy so shit. The KLA was like an organized crime syndicate that like was involved in heroin dealing and um, drug smuggling and human trafficking and, and, and kidney shit and organ harvesting. That's so it was like crazy. a complete crim- it was just a complete criminal organization of thugs. Um, man, have you been watching Squid Games? I saw the whole thing. Yeah. So, all right. I'm sorry. I'm going to spoil some of it. I think this only it's, happens it's, in the fourth it's episode. It's been long enough. I think you can spoil it's it. It's been long it's enough, fine. and I'm not going. I have, I'm actually only in to four, episode four or five, wherever this oh, part gets of so the much plot better. takes place. And um, it's very intense for me, honestly. It's, it's hard for me to watch. I, I, I enjoy it, but I can't watch it in doses because I, I find it like kind of horrifying. I don't know if you had the same. Like the the... The whole story of just people. I'm kind of. Um, I'm kind of putting himself through this. Shit, so, I'm into that, that shit. So, like, I remember watching um, Battle Royale, which was super similar uh, concept, and um, I guess Hunger Games is like that too. So, like, I'm pretty decent. Hunger Games to, disturbed to me. the The plot of the Hunger Games like truly disturbed me. I was like, man, this is really fucked I mean, up. Like, I can't. Yeah, the the idea is kind of fucked up. I'm not gonna lie. But it, it doesn't phase me as much, and I just like watch it at face value. But this was pretty cool. I, I liked it. I, I really did. But I think I, I think I know where you're going with this about the organ harvesting. Yeah. So I guess the, uh, now now you don't spoil anything for me because I'm only halfway through. But you know they yeah. everyone knows by now is about a game that people are in debt. People <laughs> with massive amounts of debt do these um, challenges like what the hell was that show what was that japanese show called where like people had these great these crazy challenges um which one there's a, a number of japanese game shows like that the one that they took they like started replaying on spike tv and they dubbed over it oh like takeshi's castle yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like that yeah. but like you die when you when you mess up i think uh i think the spike tv version was um mx live or some shit like that yeah yeah Something that was like such that. a ridiculous show the person who came I up with that, that was show. a genius because that was so funny uh but yeah it's that but they they uh if you when you mess up you die but i guess in a couple episodes in they find out that you know some of the people are, are organ harvesting the people who die that's what it reminds me of i just that just came to mind because i've been watching it um, but yeah, it's sick. They were they were they were um, like a true a truly brutal group. Now um, now to pull this back to our episode on Bosnia, and I didn't talk about this in our last episode. Um, we I probably should have brought this up in our last episode, but I thought it'd be better to speak about it in the context of Kosovo. 
Uh, we all know that the United States fostered uh, Islamist militant groups in the 1980s to fight the Soviet Union in, in Afghanistan. Right. Very few people know that the U.S. was backing Islamic militants for a second time in the 1990s. So following the Russian withdrawal from Afghanistan in 1989 and, and the, the collapse of their puppet regime in, in 1992, um, many of the Islamist fighters there were left with nothing to do. And, um, you know, they were provided with a new cause in the Balkans. And the Clinton administration gave the green light to um, not only Saudi Arabia, but Iran as well, um, along with, um, you know, the various radical Islamic charities to arm the Bosnian Muslims. Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the uncle oh. of Ramzi Youssef, um, KSM? You know, the Ramsey, yeah, KSM, um, uncle of Ramzi Youssef, the, the bomb maker in, in uh, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and, and also just one of the main architects of 9-11, he got his stripes fighting in, in Bosnia. You know, I think, think I remember you saying that when we were talking about 9-11 and I'd never made that connection. That's crazy. Yeah. He, he, he like, that's... Because I think he didn't fight in Afghanistan, so he got his fight. He got his stripes fighting in in Bosnia, um, and, and a lot of other Bin Ladenites, um, you know, got their training and got their their first battle experience and and fighting in the the conflicts there. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned before um, in 1998, the the uh, the KLA was already listed by the State Department as a terrorist organization. Um, you know, they <clears throat> allegedly had financial ties with, with uh, bin Laden and, and uh, you know, the heroin trade. Um, so Ayman Z- Zawa- Zawahiri, um, his brother was actually, uh, he, he was in the KLA or he led a KLA unit. And, hmm. um, you know, allegedly he had direct radio contact with NATO leadership. So... I could believe that, man. I feel like we set all that shit up. So, just like you're just left with like, <clears throat> what, what the fuck? But yeah. you know why the Balkans? And you know we went over this in our last episode, man. Like we, wh- like what was the real reason for the intervention in in NATO? I mean, I guess you could go. I mean, at the very best, you can say, hey, man, like there was a conflict in in Serbia and these people were going to be ethnically cleansed. And, you know, we were just at the Scott Horton debate um, with against Bill Kristol. And then Mm -hmm. someone asked him at the end that they asked, he was asked a question saying what conflict was worth it or or what was a successful intervention? And Bill Kristol said Kosovo. (laughs) Yeah. And then Scott Horton was like, kind of like what? And that that, that was the end of the um, that debate. And but I guess maybe you can kind of sort of look at the humanitarian angle of it and say, hey man, like we're not making this up about Milosevic. Milosevic was a pretty terrible person, and there was definitely uh, I don't want to say that there there were definitely massacres and uh, ethnic cleansing uh, among. Among Albanians, um, so I, I know a guy. I have an Albanian friend who's um, who his grandfather was assassinated 
during this time period. And he's yeah. actually kind of – this guy is um, a um, – I would say he's kind of like a – I don't want to call him a conservative or anything like that. He's not a conservative, but he's like red pilled. You know, he would call himself red pilled, who's like you know super into reading about scandals and hates the Clintons and stuff. And mm-hmm. um, not saying hating the Clintons make you red pilled, because there's a lot of idiots who hate the Clintons too. But you know, he's right. somebody who's kind of up to date on stuff and doesn't buy like all the corporate press narrative. But he always he's like he said to me, he's like the one thing that I like about the Clintons is they intervened in Kosovo. Because that was because those because those Serbians were going to kill all of us, and um, you know you obviously can't blame him. His grandfather was assassinated there, right? Like his grandfather was murdered. So of course he's gonna, you know, when you speak to people like when you speak to people who have like you know um, victims in their fam or family victims, um, you know you, you can kind of create that justification to intervene because you know there definitely were atrocities it's just you know what does the intervention actually cost and then are there actors who are trying to uh exaggerate the serb the serb atrocities in order to justify the intervention because remember you know the the major theme of our last episode on on the yugoslav wars was that um nato was the historical uh precedent was set or changed for NATO because NATO was a defensive organization and it became an offensive organization. And, you know, we, we kind of ended our last episode with Bosnia was that, you know, NATO kind of became an occupying force in Bosnia and where, you know, uh, you know, they don't even really control their government. There's a, you know, a high uh, commissioner uh, who, who basically can control the Bosnian government by fiat or make decisions in the Bosnian government by fiat. So they're kind of just like an occupied territory uh, with NATO in control. Um, so it, it kind of sets the precedent of NATO becoming an offensive organization rather than what it was intended to do was be a bulwark against the Soviet Union and um, you know protect um, countries from you know some huge red invasion if that were to happen. Um, but, you know, Here's an interesting story, and I think this will be something really interesting to end on. Um, I want to bring up General Sir Michael Jackson. Michael, Michael Jackson. Jackson. Michael Jackson. <laughs> so he actually had a reason. Um, so I have a quote from him. So uh, we will certainly stay here. Well, well, he's the he was a commander of NATO troops in the region. Um, we will certainly stay here for a long time in order to guarantee the safety of the energy corridors which cross Macedonia. The general was talking about the Trans-Balkan pipeline passing through Bulgaria, Macedonia, and Albania planned to be, pri- to be a primary route to the West for Central o- Asian oil and gas. So, I mean, was this about pipelines? You know, probably. It You're was like, probably what was like the money interest and <laughs> in, like the big politic corporate interest in all of this and you're like ah, mm-hmm. well there were b- big pipeline projects are you still with me yeah no i i am I, and i t- totally agree i, I think it yeah. definitely has to do with with oil 100 um We're for but oil. here but sir i want to end with sir michael jackson because um he actually may have saved the world from utter annihilation so the king of pop saved the world amazing well, in the closing days of the fighting, uh, Moscow 
dispatched a peacekeeping force without prior authorization from from Western powers. Um, Russia had expected to receive a, like a peacekeeping sector independent of NATO, and uh, then they were um, kind of uh, pushed out of the loop, and they were very angry about this. So they went ahead and did it anyway. So they sent peacekeeping hmm. forces to uh, um, to an airport, um, and um, NATO's supreme commander at the time. U.S. And, and you guys will probably know uh, Wesley Clark. Uh, Wesley Clark is the guy that he was interviewed, and then he said that he received this memo about um, you know conquering seven nations. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Man, I got a memo saying that we were going to uh, do a regime change in Iraq and and uh, Syria and Iran and, and uh, Lebanon, like seven nations." He was a NATO Supreme Commander, and he ordered General Michael Jackson, Sir General Michael Jackson, to seize the airport outside of Kosovo's capital, Pristina, and prevent the Russian uh, troop planes from landing by force. And Sir Michael Jackson, he said, I'm not starting World War III for you. I'm not going to start World War III for you, baby. That's ignorant. That's no, ignorant. No bombs. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> no, my little blanket. Jamona. No. <laughs> I'm not going to start World War Three for you. Let's all get I along and not fight over Yugoslavia. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> we are Look the at world. me. Just hold hands we without are the Yugoslavia. <laughs> no bombs. <laughs> wow. I didn't know Michael Jackson <laughs> saved the world. That's amazing. I didn't know he. I didn't know Michael Jackson was a sir either. That's amazing. I, I believe it now. King of Pop, knighted by the Queen, saved the world from World War Three. I believe it all. Crazy. Yeah. So yeah, there it is. That's um, that's our episodes on on Yugoslavia. Dude, that that was fascinating, man. And, I, and I'll just return to what I said earlier on in the show. I think again, even in this episode, you know, you heard crazy shit from like ancient ties to like fucking. Uh, uh, ethnic divides to religious divides to changing political affiliations from like communism to capitalism from autocracies to democracies like fucking everything we've seen nato involvement we've seen russian involvement we had parts of the of of world war one world war two uh the the cold war fucking terrorists organ don't like harvesting like there's so many things so many things that happened in this period too many things honestly but yeah it's just a really really just crazy story and we've only just you know if you're listening right now we just gave you basically a high like these are high level or overview. this is a yeah. high level overview like you know we're not pretending like we're doing like this super detailed historical analysis of everything and you know, using a million different sources. We're definitely this show is meant to give high level overviews and you know comment on them and and, and try to learn and, and generate real just interest in this. So um, you know, people want to continue learning about this stuff because it's so damn fascinating. Um, so this was the third episode, and I guess we can call this a series about the breakup of Yugoslavia. Um, let us know if you'd like uh, us doing like series like this. Um, because we certainly have other ideas in mind. 
one of the next ones is the Korean War um, that you know I've been reading books on, and I think that we could fit the Korean War into like a three-part series type thing because it's you know another thing, another um, situation that's not you know it's the forgotten war for a reason. So um, let us know if you want us to do something like that, and of course we'll kind of sprinkle in other episodes like um, you know that are currently uh, you know like the our usual Hot. like doing current. Hot topics, hot things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you want to wrap this thing up? Yeah, man. All right, let's. Yeah, today it's New Year's Eve right now. It's December thirty first. So, Happy New Year's, everyone. I know that will be belated because we're going to release this episode on Monday. I think that's going to be our new schedule going forward. Monday mornings, um, we're going to get back to our weekly schedule of releasing episodes. Um, if you want to support this show, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to rate this show. And attention, if you guys are listening to this show on Spotify. So Ooh, if Spotify. you are listening to this show on Spotify, you can now rate the podcast on Spotify. So if you're listening on Spotify in the top, I think, left-hand corner of your, of your Spotify app, you're going to be able to rate the podcast. So rate and review Bro History five stars. Um, we want to get that. We want to beef that up. Um, I don't know how that affects um, SEO or, or shit like that with Spotify. Most of our listens come from uh, iTunes. But, uh, yeah, we want to bump that up. So Certainly can't rate, hurt. If you listen to Spotify, <laughs> if you like this show and you want to support us and you're listening on Spotify, rate and review the podcast. It will be a tremendous help to the show. Um, and then also we have our Patreon. Uh, you can join to get access to our Slack. And our Slack is a very fun community where uh, we really just continue the discussions of this podcast. And um, we have a lot of cool people on there who bring a lot of great insight on there. Um, so join our Patreon to get access to Slack. And uh, yeah, um, anything else, Danny? No, man. All right, happy new year, guys, and R.I.P. Betty, and and, and R.I.P. Betty White. I just learned that she died. Oh, yeah. how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own stay on top of the latest financial and market news with yahoo finance a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day you'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world all in three minutes or less right after markets close check out yahoo finance wherever you get your podcasts that's yahoo finance wherever you get your podcasts